This morning's scripture reading is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree, and I ate. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. You ever sit back and wonder what's going on in the world around us? I mean, you've got Russia sitting on the Ukrainian border. That looks ominous, right? On, On the home front, 
we seem to be at war with one another, with the dividing line centering around the political aisle. More broadly, murder rates up in 2021, sexual assault still all too common, people robbed daily, be it in person or some form of cyber robbery, and the number of babies we abort is just heartbreaking. The reality, though, is we don't have to look outside of our own homes to see brokenness and heartache. Within this church, I have the highest level of confidence that this week some of our married couples fought. Maybe it was just arguing. Maybe there were some cold wars. But tension, to be sure. Moreover, I have no doubts that some of our kids lied to their parents, said hurtful things to their siblings, and perhaps an unkind thing or two to a classmate. And it would seem that the world around us, indeed our own world, is unraveling, groaning with pain. Of course, if you watch the politicians or listen to teachers in the classroom, they'll tell you that they've got some answers to the problems. They would say that if we could just educate more people, all would be well, right? Education is perhaps the answer to the world's problems. Others would say, no, no, what we need is harsher punishment for crime. We need to start hanging people again, right? That'll that'll get rid of it. That'll that'll deal with it. And still others say, no, 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 no. The issue is that of poor self-esteem, I I read an article a while back, I'm not making this up, some high school kids who converted to radical Islam, seeking to join up with some jihadis so they could go kill the infidels. And and the article asserted that the issue was an issue of poor self-esteem. If these kids would have just thought more highly of themselves, well, it would have stopped their murderous thoughts. Of course, we know that the world has no answers. We sit and we watch as they grasp at straws. As Christians, we do have answers. We know what the problem is. We know where it came from. And we know what the only solution is. And the text that we're going to be covering over the next two weeks is perhaps one of the most important passages in all of the Bible for understanding the world around us. For this text clearly lays out the problem where it came from, and it gives us a hint by way of a glorious promise of the solution. So this morning we want to listen closely to the Word of God, what God has to say to us. For I'd submit to you that if we fail to understand this passage, the rest of the Bible really won't make sense. And what's more, we too will have no answers for the craziness, indeed the pure evil in the world around us the evil within us. And so I invite you to turn with me, if you're not already there, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. In your gathering guide, you should have an outline. If you're looking at that, you'll see that I've broken this chapter up into three major sections. We'll cover two of them, the first two today, the last one next week. Today we'll look at Satan's tempting of Adam and Eve And we'll look at Adam and Eve's sin, or what we often refer to as the fall of mankind. And then next week, we'll dig back into the fall and look at the results of the fall. Our narrative begins where we left off last week. It 
begins in God's perfect garden. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God on the sixth day of creation. And mankind was said to be the highest of all of God's good creation. We were made in the image of God. Mankind was created to serve as God's vice regents in the world He created. He had given them a job of ruling the world for His glory, having dominion over all of creation, and specifically to work and to protect that perfect garden they were placed in. As we looked at Genesis 2 over the last couple of weeks, it was clear no good gifts, no good gifts were withheld from our first mother and father, right? You see that in the extravagant language of chapter 2. They had all the food they could ever imagine. Work was easy. Everything was productive. God gave the woman to the man so they could have fellowship with one another and fellowship with with God Himself. And at the end of chapter 2, we saw that they were both, quote, naked and unashamed. I mean, that is an amazing statement when you think about it. No doubt illustrating the perfect nature of their relationship with one another and their relationship with God. Think about it naked and unashamed, no worries, not, not a hint of worry of being mocked by the other, being, being willing to be completely known by the other, no need to hide whatsoever, no worries in their relationship with God, at perfect peace with God and with one another. And then chapter 3, then the serpent comes into God's good garden. And there are a million questions here that inquiring minds want to know that the text simply doesn't go into. The writer has a clear purpose, namely to narrate the fall of man and the results thereof, and thus he doesn't focus on all of the questions that we might have of this text. In other words, we don't know where the serpent came from. Did he come from outside of the garden? Was he already in the garden? We don't know. It's not the point of the passage. We are told that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made, which gives us some insight as to the fact that we're dealing with a bad ombre here. While this word translated as crafty doesn't always have a negative connotation, it it can mean prudent as it does in the wisdom literature, so context has to show you what's going on. But the context here bears out this negative idea of crafty, for as soon as the serpent begins to speak, you know there's a problem. This dude is pure evil. I should point out that as we read on in God's narrative of redemption that covers all 66 books of the Bible, it does become quite clear that this serpent is none other than Satan himself, seemingly taking on the form of a certain serpent in order to make his way up to this up to his hopeful victims. We see in both Revelation 12:9 and Revelation 20 verse 2, Satan himself is referred to as that serpent of old, pointing us back to this very passage. Now what's more, in the prophetic literature as well as Revelation, we're given some insight as to who Satan is. In Revelation 12, we're told of a war that arose in heaven. 
if we take our cues from a couple of passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel and understand them typologically, we should probably say Satan was one of God's angels, perhaps the highest of all angels, created with a complete free will, and he rebelled against God as he wanted to be God, but he was defeated and cast down to the earth where he would wreak havoc until he's ultimately put down on the last day. And that being said, it is critical to point out that Satan is a created being, right? The Bible has no category for the sort of cosmic dualism that you see in other ancient Near Eastern religions where you've got an evil God and a good God and, 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 and you're sort of hoping against hope that the good God might well win out in the end. No, Satan was created by God and he rebelled against God. We don't know exactly when this rebellion took place. Some say it was before the creation of the world. Others say it's right there in the garden. You're actually watching it unfold in Genesis 3. The truth is we don't know. What we do know is that he was decisively defeated at the cross, and his final destruction is assured. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Here in Genesis, we see that Satan, guised as the serpent, was far more crafty than any of God's other beings. And he makes his way up to the first couple and begins his plan to bring them down and wreak havoc in God's good world. And by the way, by the way, Satan's strategies today are the same as they were in the garden. If we understand passages like Ephesians 6, where we're told that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against Satan and his minions, then we probably want to watch pretty closely here so that we can be clear of the ways and the wiles of our great enemy. For he's still up to the very same tricks now as he was back then. And so often we fall for him just like our first father and mother did. I mean, don't miss how slick he is. We often think of the devil as this red guy with horns running around with a pitchfork, and he's like, go kill that person. Go, go have sex with that person. But he's far slicker than that. His ways are often way more subtle. He's far more crafty, as the text says. I mean, notice how subtle part one of Satan's tempting words are. You know, they could almost be taken as an innocent question, couldn't they? Excuse me, did God actually say that you should not eat of any tree in the garden? I mean, that seems innocent enough, right? Perhaps he's just wanting to know more about Adam and Eve's faith. Maybe he just wants to know more about their God. But look more closely what he's actually doing. Don't miss the negative overtones to the question translated in the ESV as, did God actually say? What's more, don't miss that Satan actually twists what God really did say. It's subtle, but it's there. First, he uses the term Elohim, God, rather than Yahweh, the covenant name for God that we saw roll all the way through chapter 2 as Adam and Eve were interacting with Yahweh. Second, if you compare Satan's question with what God actually said in chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, you see that he, he twists the wording ever so slightly to bring about negative overtones of God's words altogether. In the original Hebrew, he throws the negative not to the very beginning of what God says, casting negative connotation over the whole thing. Whereas if you look at 2, 16 through 17, you see that the whole thing's framed positively, with God saying, from any of the trees of the garden, you may surely eat. Moreover, Satan's casting of the 
negative at the head of God's restriction, coupled with the word any, pushes towards absolute prohibition. And, 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 and again, this is all the more clear given that he altogether negates the fact that they were told that they could indeed eat freely of all of the trees, save the one. So what's he doing? Don't want to miss this because he still does it, right? He's downplaying God's extravagant provision, and he's highlighting the one restriction, seeking to cause Adam and Eve to think that God is perhaps some cosmic killjoy. And brothers and sisters, again, I would submit to you he's still at this in the world today. Sometimes you hear people say things like, Christianity is just a straitjacket. It's just a bunch of rules. It's a bunch of do's and don'ts with more don'ts than do's, and the don'ts are the things that I want to do. Of course, that's not who God is at all. And it's certainly not what Christianity is. For those in Christ, we have amazing liberty with just a few rules, to be sure. Rules that are there to protect God's people because He knows what's best for us. I mean, we're not God or little gods, but I'm sure all of us have rules in our home. All of us parents have rules in our homes because we know what's best for them, right? I trust you have rules like no drinking out of the toilet. Uh, Just don't do it, you know? Uh, They really only want that when they're younger. Once they realize that it's gross and, you know, they can get fresh, clean water out of the the spigot, anytime they want, they kind of move on. But you got rules like no campfires in the bedroom. None, right? Don't play in traffic. Perhaps a little restrictive to the adventurous type. I understand that. But not to be a killjoy, right? We have rules because we know what's best. Don't want our house to burn down. Don't want the kid hit by a car. And that is certainly how God's rules are for His people. Take His restrictions on sex. People say, God's just a cosmic killjoy, and Christians need to move on into the 21st century. But listen, that's just a a heaping, steaming pile of horse manure. God is all too aware of the pain of hooking up. He created sex to be enjoyed with great liberality within the context of a one-man, one-woman marriage. In fact, He commands us and teaches us not to withhold that good gift from one spouse. But, But see, the restrictions are there because God understands sex. He created it after all. It was His idea. And He created it to be the closest possible union that two human beings can possibly have with one another and to act out that bond only to break it and to do that kind of thing over and over again leaves those involved broken. Not to mention the broken homes that are the inevitable result. But see, this is the temptation of the devil here in this text and still today. He wants to downplay the extravagant provision and freedoms of God, highlight the few restrictions in order to get us to think, God's not fair. God's not good. He's not for us. He doesn't really give us what we want or what we're sure we need since we think we're all-knowing, which is deluded. So there's Satan's first approach, and Eve bites. She enters into the conversation. See, while such questioning of God could seem on the one hand a little disturbing, it could also seem on the other hand a little flattering. D.A. Carson says it well. He says, quote, such a question invites human beings made in God's image to stand in judgment of God. I want to say that again. That is really important. 
Such a question, talking about Satan's question, such a question invites human beings made in God's image to stand in judgment of God. And think about it. This kind of question, when entertained, can lead us to question, yeah, did God really say that? Why would He say that? I can't believe He would say something like that. Can you? Why would He do such a thing? And see, that, that strokes our pride, leads us right into what Carson calls the de-godding of God. It's the first step of putting ourselves on the judgment seat, where we now stand over and above God in our minds, obviously, not in real life, but in our minds, we stand over and above God and somehow have the right to tell the potter how he should have shaped the clay. Thank you very little. And he bites, or maybe we should say she nibbles a bit if you ever been fishing. You know, sometimes they nibble a bit before they bite. And here she nibbles. She begins by saying, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Like Satan's questions, her answer seems innocent enough at first pass, except when you consider two things. First, is what she said what God really said? And second, as God's created being, is that how she should have responded? First, is that what God really said? And the answer is yes and no. Notice that Eve, like Satan, downplays the extravagant provision of God. It's subtle, but it's there. God's words to Adam, again, back in Genesis 2, very, very positive. God says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, all cast positive. But of course, we know that those words were spoken to Adam, and I wouldn't build my whole theology on this, but one could certainly surmise that perhaps Adam, the leader of his home, didn't convey very clearly what God actually said. We don't know that, but for whatever reason, Eve downplays the extravagant provision of God, and then she even goes beyond what God said. She says, not only did he say we mustn't eat from the tree, he even says we mustn't touch it. And that is not what God said. You could call Eve the first Pharisee here, going beyond what God said, adding rules to the one rule. In any event, she downplays the extravagant provision of God, goes beyond what he says, seemingly casting more negativity on his restriction. And I think this is seen all the more if we sort of step back and consider what she might have said. Satan comes into the garden with a subtle attempt to get her to doubt the goodness of God, to get her to de-God God, to put herself in the place of God, to cast judgment upon God's command. And again, I want to quote Carson here because it's really good. Carson says, quote, What she should have said was, are you out of your little skull? This is Eden. I've got a husband who thinks I'm pretty fantastic, and I think he's pretty hot too. And everything around us is good and right and clean. We walk with God in the cool of the day. He created us. He made us his vice regents. He knows best. We didn't make this garden. We received it from him. We alone are his image bearers. Shall we stand in judgment of God? Would God have given us any prohibition if it wasn't for our good? Shall we as His creation stand in judgment of our Creator? That, Carson says, is what she should have said, end quote. I think that's right. 
but instead she nibbled. She enters into the conversation, thus giving Satan the opportunity to ratchet up the attack, which is exactly what he does. And move into verses 4 through 5. He's now moving right into a blatant attack against God, a full-on frontal assault against that first couple to get them to stand in judgment and rebel against God. Here, Satan, seemingly emboldened by the woman's response, straight up calls God a liar. God could not have been more clear in 2.17 that if the man and the woman eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would most surely die. And Satan says, whatever, you won't die? That's a lie. God's wrong. God's word simply can't be trusted. He doesn't know nor does he want what's really best for you. He's actually trying to limit you. He's trying to keep you down. He just knows that if you eat this wonderful tree, you'll be like him. Your eyes will be open. You'll know what he knows. And the irony is palpable and painful here. The man and the woman who were made in the image of God were thus already like God. And now being tempted to be like God, they would lose what they once had as the image of God would be marred. So they would, in point of fact, be less like God. Oh, in some respects, they would know more. They would learn to know the knowledge of evil experientially. Remember, we said wisdom is a good thing, but biblically speaking, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom gleaned apart from God, which is what this tree is all about, is the knowledge of God experientially. Again, that's what the tree's all about. It's not about a discussion, was it an apple tree, was it a pear tree? I don't care what kind of tree it was. It's an object lesson. Would they listen and obey God? Would they, would we, put ourselves in the place of God and stand over God's revealed will as though we can somehow pass judgment on it? That's what the temptation was here. They were tempted to believe that God doesn't know nor want what's best for them. They were tempted to de-God God and put themselves on the throne. They were tempted to reject God as their king, to put themselves in the very place of God declaring what is in fact good and evil and to do so apart from what he said. See, we can know good and evil according to God's revealed will. He tells us. But to make judgment on what he said, to doubt it, to do it our way, as Sinatra sang, is to rebel against him, to think of ourselves as God, and to learn what is evil by experience, which is precisely what Adam and Eve did and what all of us would have done, and is therefore why they and we deserve God's judgment. Thus, the text goes on to tell us in verse 6 that Eve listened to Satan. She, she saw that the tree was good for food. We're told that it was a delight to her eyes. Looks good. I want that. And that she saw that the forbidden tree was desired to make one wise, and so she took of it and then she ate and notice what else she did. She just hands it to the side. She, she gives some to her husband who's standing right there. The text says that. Don't miss that. We'll get into that more next week. And it's as though this passage has been zoomed in on the conversation that's happening, right? With, with Eve and Satan. But all the while, Adam's just like, I don't know what he's doing. 
He certainly wasn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. He certainly wasn't keeping and guarding anything. Just there, standing there, and she hands some to him, and he also ate. And everything would go wrong from that moment on. You want to know what the source of evil is in the world today? It's right here. The issue is not more education. It's not stricter laws. It's not poor self-esteem. The issue is sin. That is the world's problem. That is your problem, and that is my problem. It is the blatant rebellion against God, the de-godding of God, the putting ourselves in the chair, casting our own prideful judgment as to what is good and right rather than listening to what God has revealed. And that's what Adam and Eve did. And what every single human being who is born after them has done with the exception of one. And that's of vital importance. Next week we're going to move into the glorious promise that God made that one day He would crush the head of the serpent thereby overturning the curse. But we'll save that for next week. Here I want to consider the amazing wonder that the New Testament writers show us how Jesus came and succeeded where Adam failed. Jesus, who the New Testament calls the second Adam, comes and succeeds. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. You want to flip over there. Luke chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Much we could say about that text, but I want you to notice Luke is drawing our attention to an Adam-Christ typology And we'll look at Romans 5, where I get that language from in in just a minute. But here, I want you to see what the inspired writer is doing. I want you to notice, hopefully you have a paper copy, Humpen. I want you to notice what's right before the temptation of Jesus here in Luke. Look at it. It's the genealogy of Jesus. It's well documented that, that Luke goes at Jesus' genealogy different than Matthew. Both are true, both are legit. 
They're just coming at it from different ways, highlighting different things. Matthew wants to drive home that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And see, due to the Old Testament scriptures, by the time you get to the first century, there's this huge messianic expectation out there so that people were waiting for one who was going to come through the line of Abraham, through the line of David, who would usher in a kingdom that would never end. And Matthew, with his genealogy, goes what? through Abraham, through David, as though he wants to say, ding, 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 we have a winner right here. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, and he's the one you've been looking for. Luke is doing something different, though just as important. Luke takes the genealogy the other way. He goes from Jesus, making big skips along the way, but he's wanting to trace the line all the way to Adam. Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who is the Son of God. And then he goes right from the genealogy directly to the temptation, so as to draw the comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam, between Jesus and and, and Adam, and to show that the second Adam stands strong where the first Adam fell on his face. Now, flip over to Romans 5, where Paul talks about this very theologically. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, there's that language, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for the many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man... Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is a super dense passage. We could spend months of Sundays focused on this one text, but for our purpose this morning, what I want you to see is the Adam-Christ connection. I want you to see that Paul wants us to see that we are all born in Adam. We're all born with the guilt of Adam's sin, and in fact, we are all actual transgressors like Adam. And as a result, we all deserve God's judgment. But Jesus, the second Adam, came on the scene. And as Luke showed us, he succeeded where Adam failed. And for those who trust in Christ, he becomes our representative And his perfect obedience becomes ours, praise God. 
Paul's showing us that every human being in every time and place of the world stands in representative relation either to Adam or Jesus. Those in Adam, which again is where we're all born, those in Adam are under the category heading of sinner and thus under condemnation. Those in Christ, by faith, while actual transgressors, but by virtue of our new relation to Christ, have the obedience of Christ credited to our account. And so, for those in Christ, God counts us righteous, not because of anything we've done. No, God justifies sinners only on the basis of Christ's perfect obedience, which God imputes, He he credits to our account as part of the amazing transaction that happens when we believe in what Jesus has done on the cross. And if I've lost any of you in that, let me summarize it like this. Adam's sin brought sin and death into the world. Jesus' death on the cross brought redemption of sin and reconciliation back to God for all who trust Him. And friends, as we're all born in Adam, we've not only inherited the guilt of His original sin, but we are also all sinners by nature and by choice. Every single one of us have de-godded God and put ourselves in His place, and so we deserve His righteous judgment. But the Scriptures are clear. It doesn't have to end there. In the promise that we'll look at next week and the actual coming of Christ, the grace of God is on amazing display. He sent His Son to come and rescue us from the eternal punishment we deserve and bring us back into the fellowship we broke. So, if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ as your only hope for fellowship with God, if your life has never been changed by the transforming power of God, I would plead with you to look to Jesus, believe the gospel, follow Him even today. For believers, those who have been redeemed by the second Adam, we want to praise God. We want to praise and thank Him every day of our lives. And we want to follow in Jesus' footsteps of obedience. Going back to our Ephesians 6 sermon from a few months ago, we need to recognize the deceit and ongoing temptation of the evil one and his minions. We live in a world under the influence of the devil. I didn't make that up. Read Ephesians 2. This world constantly says, did God really say? Did God really say, really, that you shouldn't have sex until marriage? Did, Did God really say that the husband is the leader in the home and the wife is to follow his lead? I mean, come on. Surely that's antiquated. Surely God needs some help. He needs us to help him bring the Bible into the 21st century. Did God really say children should obey their parents? Even when their parents tell them to do something they don't want to do? Did God really say, I mean, really, did he really say Marriage is between one man and one woman. You know, according to a recent Barna poll, lots of Christians have a problem with that. Did God really say it? 
did God really say we should forgive? It's like, I know I should basically generally forgive, but that guy's a jerk, and, and I don't want to forgive him. I want to hold him liable. Did God really say we should love our enemies? Did God really say we should give of our hard-earned finances? See, the question over and over and over again is this. Has God really spoken? And must we really obey? And the answer is yes and yes. God has spoken, and He's called us to trust Him, to follow Him. Adam and Eve learned evil experientially. All of us have learned evil experientially. And as Christ-redeemed people now indwelt, empowered by this very Spirit of God dwelling within us, we are to daily fight to let God be God. And you know what I mean by that? Of course, God is God. I'm talking about the sin within our heart that constantly wants to think of ourselves as God. We're constantly being tempted to put ourselves in the place of God, to de-God God, to stand in judgment over what God said. And the way we fight that is to daily, yes, I split the infinitive, to daily believe the revealed will of God. We want to read His Word. We want to sit under it preached. We want to ask Him for the grace to believe what it says, even when it's different than what our culture says, even when it's different than your dearly held presupposition. Has God really spoken? Must we really obey? By the power of the Spirit, and I would add the help of brothers and sisters in Christ. This is one of the areas why we need each other. We, 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 we need to fight the good fight so that daily we can say, God is God, and He is good, and He has spoken, and I will not put myself in judgment of His good word. I will follow Him. I'm not going to place myself as God and judge which parts of His Word I like and which parts I don't like. Brothers and sisters, let us follow our Savior, the leader and captain of our faith who God sent to rescue us, who, who perfectly obeyed God, which we know we never can. But we do know we're called to trust Him to follow Him. We're called to trust His good Word and believe that we can have forgiveness and fellowship restored and that we can enjoy happiness and joy that we find in obedience to our God who is good and trustworthy and loves us and wants what's best for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have indeed spoken. We hear so many voices, everybody's speaking something to us. Some of what they say sounds and feels compelling, but we know that we can come back to you again and again and again and see what you have said, see what you have done, and by your grace, by the power of your Spirit, bring our lives in conformity to that. And so we pray that you would help us 
Help us to be faithful. Help us to live our lives to make much of you. We ask for your help, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.